Well, all June, we have been diving into this letter that is uh, compiled for us and it's found in our New Testament. It's called First Peter, creatively written by Peter. And Peter is writing to these early Christians, these early Jesus followers who have found themselves in exile. They're in this space where they're scattered out across the ancient Near East and they can't live the way that they feel like God has called them to live. And they feel like they're stuck in these in-between type of moments that we find ourselves in all the time, right? You ever had those in-between types of moments when you're like, okay, this just doesn't feel right. I don't feel like I'm at home. This is not what I signed up for, but we're stuck in the middle of this in-between moment. And he's writing to these Jesus followers, and I think he's writing to us in a way today, too, uh, where we uh, find ourselves in these in-between moments, these exile moments, and he's trying to encourage us and letting us know that we don't have to just uh, survive and just get through these times, but there are ways that we can thrive and find life to the fullest, even in these in-between exile moments. And maybe your in-between exile moment looks like a job situation where you're in a work environment that you don't like in a job that you don't want to be in come tomorrow morning, and you just feel stuck there. Maybe for you, it's in a relationship. One of your most important relationships uh, is just not the way that you want it to be, and you feel stuck where it's like, oh, it could be so much better, my marriage or my relationship with my kids or my dating relationship, but it's just stuck. Maybe for you, it's in your spiritual life to where you feel like uh, you and God have a lot of distance between you, and it's just not the way that you want to be, but you find yourself in this exile moment. And like I said, Peter is encouraging us. He's letting us know that there are ways that we can thrive through these seasons. But this morning, what we're going to talk about, uh, it's counterintuitive. It's something that, uh, it's the gateway for us to really experience thriving in these moments, but man, it just doesn't feel natural at all. It feels like we'll be taking a step backwards if we do this and not a step forward. It's weird. It's counterintuitive. I was thinking this last week about lots of things that are counterintuitive. They're really helpful, but they don't seem to make sense in our minds. I I grew up as a child of the 90s, and it felt like every sitcom, every TV show that I ever watched, every movie, there was a quicksand plot. You guys remember like the quicksand things? Like somebody would fall into quicksand, they'd be stuck. And I remember thinking, you know, now I look at it, I'm like, man, I thought this would be a much bigger deal in my life than it actually was. Don't experience a lot of quicksand. But if you find yourself in quicksand, your first action usually is to try to struggle to climb out of quicksand. But what happens? The more that you struggle in quicksand, what happens? You sink down farther. You're just supposed to stand there still and yell for help, you know, without moving at all. It's counterintuitive, but it's the way that we find ourselves out of quicksand. I remember growing up and getting some advice from the fire marshal or firefighters that came to our elementary school. And they said, if you ever get caught on fire, you catch on fire, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. And can I just be real with you? That's counterintuitive to me. Like, if I get caught on fire, I'm taking off running, and I'm finding the, like, quickest body of water I could jump into possible. It's the only way that really helps us, but it's counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make sense on the surface at all. Uh, In my marriage right now, in our family life, we've got two littles. Uh, We've got Jack, who's two years old, and Thomas, who's about 12 weeks old now. And so uh, life is busy, and it's crazy when we're at home wrangling these two uh, little boys. And uh, we discovered uh, a couple weeks ago that, hey, if we don't get really rigid in schedule time where it's just Megan and I, um, then we're just never going to actually have it. And so I instituted an, a bi-weekly uh, date night to where like somebody else takes our kids, puts them down to sleep, and we're investing in babysitters and we're doing this whole thing to make sure that we can actually spend time looking at each other without like falling asleep with our phone in our hands, right? But we realized we had to be really, really you know, strenuous on this. We had to be really tight about this so that we can make that a priority. So that we could have free time, we had to be really tight on our calendar 
seems weird. Another weird thing, a couple years ago, I realized that Sometimes when I get stuck creatively, a lot of the work that I do is creative because I'm coming up with content and studying and trying to make the Bible come to life to all of us. Uh, And sometimes I get stuck and it's like Thursday morning and I'm like, this talk is nowhere or it's going like eight different places all at once, which is usually the case. And I'm like, I just need to take a break. And so I discovered a couple years ago, the best way for me when I'm stuck in my creative work for me to move forward is to put it down and go see a movie in the middle of the day. So I'm that weird guy that shows up sometimes in the middle of the afternoon to go see a movie by myself. Um, but it, I found that some, it uncorks something in me, and it helps me get into the place I need to be creatively. It helps clear my mind so that I can move on and move forward in my prep of a message. And it sounds counterintuitive, right? It looks like I'm just taking off of work, but it actually opens me up, and it frees me to look at my work differently. It's counterintuitive. And what we're going to talk about this morning, what Peter is encouraging these early Jesus followers to do, it's very counterintuitive. It's the word submission. It's submission. That is how we find freedom. That's how we actually thrive, Peter says, is submission. We'll put it this way. Um, Submission is the gateway. It's the open door for you and I to thrive in our exile moments, in our in-between moments. We need to learn to submit to the authority That is around us in every sphere of our relationships. When we learn how to submit, man, that's when we begin to thrive. And that's when we begin to find the other side of our exile moments. But can I be honest with you? Like a little bit of a reverse confessional this morning, a pastor confessing confessing to their church. Um, I do not like on the surface the passages that we're going to look at this morning. Um, If it were me, I would have skipped over this and pretend that it wasn't in the Bible at all because this is some hard stuff for me. So everything I'm preaching this morning, man, it is going to me first and it's hitting me first because it is challenging to me because submission to authority is like the last thing from natural in my life. I mean, the very first band that I was ever in when I was in middle school, before I could really play an instrument, the goal when you don't really know how to play an instrument but you want to play music is learn punk rock. If you didn't know that, that's what it is. So the very first type of music that I learned was punk rock because it, it wasn't complex, it wasn't hard, but it's like you play it fast and you play it loud and you sing like this and then everything just works. Um, so I was in a band with some friends in eighth grade and we covered a bunch of Blink-182 songs. And if you don't know who Blink-182 is, they were this incredible, monstrous pop punk band at the end of the 1990s and early 2000s. The first song that we ever sang and I played bass guitar on um, was called All the Small Things and it went a little something like this and I'm not gonna do that. Um, Um, But I've learned punk rock, but there's something about me connecting with punk rock I think of now, like, it connects with my personality. I have a little bit of stick-it-to-the-manism inside of me. I don't like authority just for authority's sake, and punk rock kind of opened that up in me. As I grew up, I found that this is just part of who God made me to be. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Enneagram assessment. It's an ancient personality test that, um, man, God used in my life a ton. But I learned that I'm an Enneagram 8 which the title of an Enneagram 8 on this personality test is the challenger. And our deepest fear is to be controlled by other people. Can you imagine why submission to authority is a tough thing for me, right? I mean, I learned that's my deepest fear, and I have a high justice meter. And a lot of times I'll see rules that are on certain people, and I'm like, we need to tear that rule down because that's not fair to them, and that's injustice. And this is all the way that God made me. So submission to authority is something that's not natural to me at all. And maybe it isn't for you, too, I imagine, just because you're an American. Like, it's the American way to fight against authority, right? I mean, people were taxing our tea, and they didn't give us our freedoms, and so we became our own nation. It's kind of in the DNA of us as Americans. But Peter is going to teach us 
that submission, it's actually the gateway for us to thrive in our exile moments. And I think as we dive into the text this morning, look at these ancient words that were written to ancient Jesus followers, we'll be able to quickly build a bridge to my life and to your life. And I think I was challenged by this, and I think you'll be challenged by this as well. As well. So when we talk about submission, uh, we're not talking about like, uh, like a blind kind of like you just you have your hands tied behind your back and you're just begrudgingly moving forward with whatever the authority in your life says. We're talking about a Christ-like submission, a Jesus-formed submission. And this is the way that we're defining it this morning. Christ-like submission is choosing to place yourself under someone by choice and with a happy spirit. That's what Christ-like a, a, a submission is. It's looking at the authority in whatever sphere of your life that you have, and it's you making the active choice to submit, to lower yourself, to place yourself under their authority. And you do it with a smile, and you do it with joy in your heart. It's not a, oh, I've got to do this, so I'm going to do this. No, you do it with joy in your heart and with a happy spirit. So this is what we're going to talk about. This is what Peter is going to share. And we're going to go through almost an entire chapter of his letter, First um, Peter this morning, talking about this idea of submission because it was so important to him. And he's going to talk about Christ-like submission in three spheres of relationship. So just to recap where we've been so far in First Peter, we said at the very beginning, Peter just gives us this onslaught of identity um, Language. He gives us his onslaught of reminding us who we are in Jesus. And so in the first couple chapters of First Peter, he gives us all these words that we are in Jesus. We're known, we're chosen, we're made holy, we're cleansed, we're born again into his family, we're protected. And then last week, Nico shared more about this identity that uh, Peter says that we're living stones in God's new temple. In a way, Jesus followers, we are this place where heaven meets earth and we're this new temple. And then he moves on a little bit later to give us more um, identity language. And he says that we are actually God's royal priesthood. That's our job. It's, and I love what Nico said last week, that it's not if you're called to serve God in ministry, it's where you're called and how you're being deployed. That's what really matters. So we all need to get in the game of being a part of God's movement, the church and this royal priesthood. So he gives us all this language in the first couple of chapters about who we are. He says, the most important thing for you to do in thriving in exile is to first remember who God made you to be. Remember your identity. And then he moves into what we're going to talk about this morning, about Christian, Christ-like submission. He says, this is how you live it out in your relationships. Three spheres. The first sphere of relationships where we're called to have Christ-like submission is in our civic life. As citizens of where we live uh, in America today, but for them it was inside of the Roman Empire, we're called to submit to our governing authorities as a citizen of where we live. And Peter comes out swinging with some hard words for us as Americans here in uh, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. He says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. We're like, every human authority? He, he really spells it out here. He says, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Peter comes out swinging with his first sphere of relationships and he says, hey, in your civic life as citizens of where you live, submit to the governing authority. Submit to what the government is telling you to do. Dang, we don't like hearing that as Americans, right? I don't like hearing that. 
But Peter, he's getting at something underneath the surface of this that's so, so powerful. I mean, if you think it's hard for us today, think about who was actually leading the Roman Empire where these Jesus followers were living in the first, wor- in the first church in the ancient world. It was the Roman emperor, a guy by the name of Nero. And if you don't remember anything about Nero from history class, we remember that he was the one that started persecution and harsh treatment of Christians. He wanted to stamp out Christianity completely. He was a guy who was so cruel. He was known for taking Christians and then sewing their bodies into wild animal skins as a form of punishment and mockery. He then had them hunted by wild dogs to their death in a way to persecute these early Jesus followers. And then there's a story uh, written down in multiple historical accounts where he dipped Christians in wax and then set them on fire to blaze in a fiery uh, abyss all night long just to light up his gardens and his vineyards in a way to say, we need to stop this Jesus movement. Now, sidebar, why was Nero so hateful towards Christians? Because one of the first Christian beliefs, and it's still a Christian belief for us today, is that Caesar, whoever's the Caesar, is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Jesus rose from the dead, and so we're going to trust him and follow him beyond who Caesar is. Caesar's not God, but Jesus is God. And this really freaked all of the Caesars out, especially Nero. And so this is why Nero was so cruel to Christians. But we come back into the text and we see, what is Peter saying to do to Nero, to the governors that he appoints? He's saying that we should willfully place ourselves under their authority with a happy spirit. What is Peter getting at here? I mean, Nero, the cruelest of all leaders that they could possibly imagine at this time, what is Peter getting at? Peter is saying that when you find yourself in these exile moments, when you feel like you're not home and you have all these restrictions, don't rustle up against authority and waste your energy in this way. But this is an exercise for you as Jesus followers to trust God deeper. That even when Nero is on the earthly throne, you can be reminded that there's a higher throne and God is on it. And God is not asleep at the wheel, but God is doing something through this season. So don't waste your energy trying to overthrow Caesar or having this attitude that everybody knows that you're against Caesar, who was Nero at this time. Peter's saying, Christian, you have an opportunity to show that you trust God is in control and God will do something in you as you trust him. Peter's saying, you need to understand, like, these leaders that are on planet Earth in our governing bodies, like, God's not like you know, freaked out by who is in charge, but God knows who's there and he's going to use the terrible things they might do or the good things they might do all for the story that's being written beyond what you can see. So Peter says, with your governing authorities, you know, you can trust God through this and you believe that he is not asleep at the wheel of history. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now is you got what abysms, what about isms going on right now? Like, like, well, yeah, but what about this? If Christians never did anything about this, then there would be no church. Or if we didn't stand up to this one issue and we would, you know, go against what the government's saying, then um, is that like not following God? Or what happens when there's a conflict between when our, what our governing authorities are telling us to do and what the Bible uh, what is telling us to do and what Jesus is instructing us to do? And Peter actually, he answers that question with his own life. 
And right after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father in the book of Acts, which is this recording, this history of the early, early church, uh, Peter actually gets uh, thrown in front of the governing authorities because they're mad at him because Peter's preaching that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus rose from the dead. And the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders did not like this teaching at all. And so in front of the court, this is what Peter actually says to them. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So my friends, there are moments, there are moments in life and possibly in our lifetime when we're going to have to see what's being demanded of us from our governing leaders and we have to measure that up against what God wants for us. And we do have to decide that I am going to do what God says over what the governing authorities says. But let's just, let's be real here for a little bit. These things don't happen too often. (laughs) These things are a lot less common than just normal times when we're just upset with what the government's telling us to do and what our leaders are doing. And we want to uh, talk badly about them or disrespect them or not submit to them. That's usually the case. And Peter explains in the next couple of verses deeper the struggle that we might have submitting to our governing authorities. He says this, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So what is he talking about when he talks about the ignorant talk of foolish people? You see, Jesus' followers in the first century, they were on the outs of society for lots of different reasons. Did you guys know that the first church, the first Jesus' followers were called cannibals? They had this reputation of being cannibals because it was said that they ate Jesus' body and drank his blood at their meals. They thought they were cannibals. The first Christians were called atheists because they refused to believe in the Greek gods. So they were called atheists. They were called incestuous because they called everybody their brother or sister in Christ. And that was weird, weird language. They were called insurrectionists because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. And so people thought that they were insurrectionists refusing the Roman government. And so all these words were thrown at them, all this foolish talk about who they were. And Peter says, hey, we, we don't want to put all of our energy into just disrespecting or um, taking down the government, but we want to put all of our energy into doing good. It's God's will that by doing good, that is how we silence all the foolish talk. That's how we silence the foolish talk is by being people that are doing good and endearing their community every opportunity that they get. You know, you guys, when I think about our church, when I think about Bridgeway, man, I dream that we would be a community where people on the outside looking in, they would be skeptical of what we believed. (laughs) They'd be skeptical of the teaching, possibly. They wouldn't quite be able to wrap their heads around Jesus and his death and his resurrection. I I dream that people would be skeptical of that, but they could not deny how we love each other. And they just could not deny the way that we love our community. Wouldn't that be cool that people, if people were skeptical of what we believed, but they just couldn't deny the good that we were trying to do? They couldn't have these negative things that they said about us because they're like, well, yeah, but look at the way that they love our schools. Look at the way that they love the least of these all around us. This is what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, I want you to be known more for what you're for than what you're against. And can I get an amen that there's a lot of Christians that are known more for what they're against than what they're for, Right? <laughs> We don't want to be a part of that. And Peter's saying part of the way that we submit to our governing authorities is by being known for what we're for and loving people no matter where they are. And we want to be known for that love. Peter continues on the very next verse. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Peter is saying here that you have been called to be free, but I love there's a question inside of what he's saying. He says, what is freedom for? 
What is freedom that we've been given for? Is it just so that we can have more, so we can protect me and mine and have our rights and white-knuckle things for ourselves? Is that what freedom is for? No, our freedom is for us to be expressed inside of the way that we follow God, the way that we follow Jesus. And I think so often, just grace umbrella here, grace umbrella, please, friends. I think so often uh, we say we're fighting for our freedom, but what we're saying inside of that is that we're just fighting for me and mine and what I want. And I think Jesus would just push up against that a little bit. I know Peter would push up against that a little bit. He's like, remember what you're free for. (laughs) You're free for loving the people around you. You're free for following Jesus and his example for your life. That's what our freedom is for. So Peter says, don't get distracted. Submit to your authorities. Do good and be free people following God in the most beautiful ways. And he says this. Show proper respect to everyone. This is the button on his thoughts here. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Love Jesus, people. Fear God. Be reverent. Worship God and who he is. And honor the emperor. He hits the emperor thing again, which is so scandalous. But he says, show proper respect to everyone. You guys, this is so scandalous. And this is hard for me. And I imagine it's hard for you. But this is our guiding principle in thriving in exile here. This is the guiding principle, is to look at every single person as people that matter deeply to their creator. My friends, you've never made eye contact with someone who was not made in the image of God. I've never made eye contact with someone who wasn't made in the image of God. So show them that respect, not respect for what they do or what they don't do, but show them respect because their maker has placed dignity on them. And we should do this with our governing authorities. We should do these with former President Donald Trump. We should do these with our President Joe Biden. And man, have I failed at that? Yeah, I failed at that. But can we look at these people and the way that we talk about them on the internet, the way we talk about them at lunch or at the water cooler, can we show proper respect to them, not based on what they do or what they don't do, but because they're made in the image of God. And this is what Jesus is calling us to do is submit to our authorities, to willfully choose to lower ourselves under their authority with a happy spirit in a way that we worship God. So that's the first sphere of relationships that Peter encourages us to submit in. Next, he moves into what we'll just call our work life and the way that we deal with authorities in our jobs. And so I want to take the very next verse. This is what Peter says. He says this, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Let's talk about slavery. My goodness. What is Peter getting at here? I mean, you can look at this and you can say, well, the Bible says slavery is okay. I mean, there have been people throughout history that have been slave owners, slave traders that have looked at this verse and they said, this is what you're supposed to do, slaves. But let's talk a little bit about slavery here, especially on the weekend celebrating Juneteenth and the, you know, the liberation of all Americans to be free people. What is Peter getting at here? Now, we can say unequivocally that we should condemn uh, slavery full stop. It was an evil, evil practice. And it's kind of weird Christians and throughout Christian history, we have a weird history 
uh, and track record with slavery. I mean, some of the biggest slave owners and slave traders were Christians, but then Christians led the way in abolition uh, across in England and then into the States as well. And so we have a a gray track record with it. But there are some distinctions and some parallels between American slavery, you know, our country's original sin, and uh, slavery in the ancient world that we see in the ancient Near East. I mean, some of the distinctions that we need to understand is that um, in the ancient world, over over a third of all human beings were considered to be slaves. I mean, it was a huge part and a huge system of the world economy. So about one-third of all people were slaves, and over half of all the early Christians are believed to be slaves, people that were indentured servants working for a household, and they were considered to be slaves. And so there was a huge population to where in American slavery, you're less than 5% of all Americans were considered slaves. Another difference and distinction between American slavery and ancient slavery is that there was no distinction of race or color of skin that made you a slave. It was just what you were born into. It's just who you were and the family that you were born into. Many times people were just born into slavery, uh, not depending on their skin color or their history at all. And so the slavery that Peter is speaking into in the ancient world was so prevalent, it just painted the entire world with over 50% of all early Christians being slaves. Now, was it still inhumane? Was it still a great evil? Yes, it totally was. But there, I want us to take a moment and just look at some of the principles that we see in this because overall what Peter is really speaking into is less the whole system of slavery and he's more speaking into what might be considered a toxic work environment, a toxic relationship between owners and slaves, between masters or authorities and people that work for them. So let's look more deeper into what it might be for us as workers today, because Peter is saying that you need to submit in your work life to your authorities that God has placed there. So he continues on here and he says this, Um, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that no one should follow, that, that you should follow in his steps. Peter says, if you're a slave, submit to your authority, if they're harsh or if they're good. And he says, there's an example for you to follow. If, if you working in, the, in your office, uh, there's an example for you to follow. Uh, instead, of, instead of every single time that your boss asks you to do something, you have your group text that you go to and you complain about your boss. Instead of having this like, every time there's some extra work coming your way and you have to complain about it, instead of talking badly about your other coworkers or talking behind your boss's back, um, Peter says that here's an example for you to follow. He says that you can reflect Jesus in the way that you deal with your authority at work. And here's the example. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter is saying, let's not spend all of our energy. Let's not get distracted by the authorities around us, our bosses, our managers, our supervisors. He's saying this, he's like, remember that you have an opportunity in this in-between exile moment. You have an opportunity to reflect Jesus, who was the ultimate suffering servant That you can serve your clients, your clientele, and you can actually um, put your head down and do your work, and people will see Jesus through you. 
But if you're always chattering and if you're always just causing trouble and division and work, you just distract yourself from the bigger call that you have on your life. Look at Jesus. And Peter knew this because in the Garden of Gethsemane on the last night of Jesus' life, Peter, he took up a sword and cut off the ear of someone who was trying to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Um, this is not what we're doing here, Peter. There's a bigger thing going on. Don't get distracted by this. And Jesus, of course, picks up the guy's ear and puts it back on. Crazy part of the story. But Peter is reminded that you can actually reflect Jesus, the suffering servant, in the way that you treat your supervisor, the way you treat your boss, the way you treat your authority. And you can reflect Jesus. But then it comes back to that trust issue as well that you have an opportunity to trust that God is not asleep at the wheel and that God has got you in this job, in this season for some reason. And there can be some good come out of this season if you just stay buckled in to what he is doing. That you can reflect Jesus and you can trust him and God will do something in your exile moment of your life, in your work life. The last sphere of relationship that Peter talks about is inside of your family, And he gets it real personal. He says, submit in your family life to one another. And he specifically uses a marriage metaphor inside of this. So let's just start here, what Peter says about submission in a family. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. And the ladies check out and they run for the door and they're like, what is this guy talking about, right? Like, what is going on here? This sounds harsh. It bumps up against our modern sensibilities. And and this is just the beginning of a passage where women are going to have some instructions and men are going to have some really tough instructions. And this is an overarching idea throughout the New Testament, not of just women submitting to men, but men and women submitting to each other, mutual submission, each person lowering themselves for the benefit of the other person. But what Peter is starting to say here. And he's speaking specifically into a marriage relationship where the wife might follow Jesus and the husband does not follow Jesus. And he says that there is a way that you can live, that without you saying a word, you can be winsome. And they might come to trust Jesus or be open to the idea of Jesus by the way that you honor them and respect them and the way that you submit and joy to them. He says that there can be some beauty come from this and you can witness to what Jesus has done without you even saying a word inside of your marriage. So Peter continues on and he says this. He says to wives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Now hear me, this is not Peter railing. These verses have been used so out of context and he's so poorly to say like, you shouldn't have earrings, you shouldn't have nice hair, you shouldn't care about your appearance at all. This is not what Peter's saying. Peter is drawing a contrast. (laughs) He's saying that you can be obsessed about all those outward things but you miss the true beauty. And this, is a, this should be a freeing idea, women. This should be a beautiful, freeing idea that there is an inner beauty that you can have that does not fade with years. It doesn't fade with time at all, but there is a true beauty that matters eternally. The character of your spirit, the inside, that's what really, truly matters. So this is not you know, railing against any kind of outward beauty, but it's saying that, women, Jesus is inviting you, inviting you to do work on the inner part that never fades away. And he actually calls this true 
beauty. Next, Peter says this. Husbands, in the same way, he gets to the husband side, be considerate as you live with your wives, as you treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What in the world, Peter? Say that women are the weaker vessel, the weaker partner, and I would love to t- have a conversation with Peter. Said, you think they're the weaker partner. You have not met my wife, Megan Larison. Um, she is not the weaker partner at all. But let's just talk about this because if we don't talk about this phrase, uh, this is all that you're going to hear, and you're going to be like, what the heck is Peter talking about? What, this is why I don't like the Bible. This is why I'm not a Christian because this is a sexist book and all this kind of thing. So let's just talk about it. You know, you look at the actual language behind the idea of weaker partner, weaker vessel, it actually speaks more to the precious nature of a spouse, of your wife. It's precious nature. It's not just saying that it's like weak, you can just push it over, but it's saying that the wife in a marriage relationship is so precious. Uh, Think of it this way. Uh, This is a picture of a $10 million Ming vase. $10 million. And I think I would give it like 70 bucks if I saw it in something, maybe 50. Uh, $10 million. But the reality is this is worth so much. It's so precious. But you know what could like just demolish this thing? A $10 sledgehammer. <laughs> a $10 sledgehammer could just break this thing, destroy it completely. I think what Peter's getting at when he says that the wife is the weaker vessel, the weaker partner is saying that they are precious. They're worth so much. And men do not treat them like they, to exploit their preciousness by men being the $10 sledgehammer in this illustration, mind you, just breaking it up. But treat it with respect. They're precious. It might be weaker in a way that it's just worth more and it can break easier. But what I want to do is I want to go back to that passage because I know that when you first read it, all you see is the weaker vessel part and you didn't hear anything else. But this passage is such a challenge to men and it's really revolutionary in its language in the way that it talks about women. So let's go back to that and let's look at some other phrases. Husband, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Man, this is not sexist language. This is empowering and revolutionary language in the ancient world. Because Peter's saying, hey, men, uh, you need to consider your wife's feelings, emotions, desires. They're not a subset of your family. No, they are leading your family with you. So be considerate of them. He says, treat them with respect. You guys, this was not found in the ancient world. This is a uniquely Christian idea to treat women with respect. (laughs) It sounds so crazy to say it now, but this was a revolutionary idea. And he says women aren't just thrown into the spiritual reality because of who they're married to. No, Peter says that women, you are co-heirs with uh, with you in the gracious gift of life that Jesus gives you. I mean, they are co-heirs. Everything that Jesus is doing is not just for the men, but it's for men and women. And then there's a stark warning at the end of the passage. Did you catch this? Peter's saying, hey, men, if you don't get this right... If you don't respect, be considerate, see them as co-heirs with you. If you don't get this right, your prayers are going to hit the floor of heaven, and they're not going to make it through. You might be praying for something good, but if you don't have this part of your life submitting to your wife in this way, if you don't have this figured out, oh man, you're not going to get a breakthrough, and your prayers will be hindered. See how beautiful that is, and how challenging that is to the men in the room or watching online this morning? But Peter says that you can thrive in any moment of your life in these exile in-between moments 
if you submit in your marriage relationship, it can be a winsome moment. Let me say this, men in the room, there might be some guy that you work with, some guy that you know, and by the way that you treat your wife in front of them, um, man, they might be open to the idea of Jesus or they might be repelled by the idea of Jesus. Seriously, there might be somebody who's on the outside looking at a faith and seeing the way that you honor your wife, respect your wife, and seeing the way that your wife respects you and honors you and serves you, man, that might be like, hey, my marriage is kind of a mess or I want that. And how do they have that? They have that because they're Jesus followers. It can be winsome. And you don't have to say a word to them about the gospel, but they might want to show up to church with you. They might want to learn more about Jesus by the way that you honor, respect, and mutually, both sides submitting to each other in a relationship. It's incredible what that might do in your relationship. So to get this real practical as we close, uh, here's what I want to probe you with, question you with right here. Which sphere of relationship are you struggling in? When you think about being able to willfully and joyfully place yourself under somebody else and submit to them, which one of those spheres of your relationships you're like, nah? Is it in your civic life? Is the way you speak about the governing authorities? Is the way that you follow the governing authorities? <laughs> is it the way that you joke or put down the governing authorities? Is that a place you struggle with? Is it inside of your work to where you're more of the, when you're asked to do something, you give the whole eye roll sign, face palm. When you think about your supervisor, it's a, it's, he's more of a joke. She's more of a joke than she is somebody that maybe God's placed there to lead you for a time such as this. Maybe it's in your relationship at home. Maybe it's in the relationship of your marriage to where if in public people would see you, it's more of a bickering style relationship. It's more of a demeaning style of relationship towards each other than it is mutually lowering yourself and serving each other or having that race to the back of the line for the good and betterment of the other. Which one is it that's hard for you? Identify which one of those relationships it is that's hard for you. And then I want to challenge you with this. This is what our uh, submission does. It gives us an opportunity to trust him in that relationship. It's to, it gives us an opportunity to say, okay, I might not like where it is right now, but God, you've got a purpose here. You're not asleep at the wheel. Um, these challenges in their relationships, it gives you an opportunity to reflect him. It gives you an opportunity to follow his footsteps and being that suffering servant to say, it might not be good, but I'm going to put my head down and I'm just not going to like cause a big fight. I'm just going to keep going and trusting that God has got something for me. And I can be more like Jesus because of that. And maybe to say, hey, where I'm struggling in this relationship, it's an opportunity for me to witness about him. <laughs> maybe just by the way that I am living, that maybe they'd be curious about Jesus, or maybe they, they would see, before I even say a word, they would see the way that Jesus is changing our lives and he's changing our relationships. And they'd be like, that's interesting. And they would lean into the spiritual possibility of your life, which relationship is the struggle for you? And look at the invitation that we have inside of these relationships to submit, to lower ourselves joyfully under the other person and what could happen because of it. My friends, I wanna, I wanna leave you with this thought right here, that ultimate freedom is found when we place ourselves under God's authority. Ultimate freedom. Now, this is a paradoxical statement. This is kind of counterintuitive. But my friends, if you're wanting to be free Man, you place yourself under God's authority and see that God is behind all these different authorities in our lives. 
Because God is good. He's not asleep at the wheel. He wants you to thrive. And he wants better for you than you can even dream for yourself. So if you want to be free, don't run from God's authority, but run to God's authority because it's good. And it's got your best interests at heart. My friends, the early church, the early Jesus followers faced intense persecution. But they silenced the foolish talk. They kept their heads down and they followed Jesus through it. And here we are, 2,000 odd years later. (laughs) We're still here because Jesus is going to build his church. And part of the way that we're gathered together hearing this message is because the early Jesus followers took this advice seriously. May we do the same. Because ultimate freedom is found under God's authority. When we place ourselves under there, that's where freedom is truly found.